So Revelation chapter 4, starting at verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal." And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. (coughs) And the four living creatures, each of them with six eyes, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." Lord, as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to see and understand and believe what we see. Let us be built up today and and strengthened and become more like Christ. Reveal yourself and your majesty and your glory to us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Well, we looked at the first uh, six and a half verses before we before we ended, we see that uh, John describes a, a door in heaven, uh, a voice, the one that had been speaking to him in chapter one, which is like a trumpet. It's the voice of Christ calling him up. John is in the spirit, which means this is taking place by means of a vision. He's not physically being taken to heaven. And he describes God. He's one who has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Those are precious stones. He's on a throne uh, that is surrounded by a rainbow. Rainbows don't surround things. The, the, the most you can ever see of a rainbow is, is a half circle. And even that, it, it might come all the way to earth, but if you measure it out, it's not actually a half circle. It's a flatter arc than that. The way you get a rainbow, by the way, if you're curious, you can have a rainbow anytime you want. All you need is a spray of water and light, and make sure that the light is behind you as you look at the spray of water out in front. It's, it's just physics. It's all it is is physics. So notice here that you've got a rainbow surrounding the throne. It's not a rainbow in front or over. It's surrounding the throne. I, I think maybe God is speaking to, to us a little bit through our understanding of physics and saying his majesty is displayed 360 degrees. It's not just here or there it's everywhere that we see john describes 24 thrones with 24 elders we're going to talk about them uh, again at the end of the passage 
From the throne come flashes of lightning and rumbles, peals of thunder. Uh, These are descriptions that are commonly used in the Old Testament for the presence of God and the glory of God and the power of God expressed. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, the seven spirits of God. That's the Holy Spirit, not seven different spirits. It's the Holy Spirit. It's a reference back to Zechariah chapter 4, where seven torches and seven eyes are are, are used to describe the Holy Spirit, who is filled with light and who is aware and sees all that takes place. So picking it up halfway through through verse 6 then, around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And he describes them. The first is like a lion. The second is like an ox. The third is like a man, the face of a man. The fourth is like an eagle of flight. They have six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within. So they, these are, are angelic creatures. They're angelic beings. If you want to hold a place there in Revelation and turn back to Ezekiel chapter 1 or just stay in, in uh, Revelation and I'll read this to you. John is repeating or, or seeing something that we've already seen in Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel goes into far more detail about these creatures Starting in verse 5, from the midst of, of uh, the stormy wind and great cloud of brightness, Ezekiel says, came the likeness of four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. The four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And so we see the the connection there with Revelation. Uh, Their wings spread out. Each creature had two wings touching the wings of another while two covered their bodies. Each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. The fire is bright. The living creatures dash to and fro in verse 14. He describes then in uh, beginning in chapter, uh, verse 15, a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four. He describes the appearance of the wheel. In verse 17, he says, when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. Their rims were tall and awesome. The rims of all four were full of eyes all around. Again, the, the omniscience of God, the, the vision, the sight of God. Over the heads in verse 22 of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. So the same sea of glass like crystal that John describes in chapter 4. Again with the, the creatures. And then in verse 26, above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, like a precious gem. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. Like the appearance of fire, it closed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, 
so is the appearance of the brightness all around. So John is seeing the same vision that Ezekiel saw. He describes it in a little different way, but enough of the elements are common to know that that's what John is saying. Now, it's the end of Ezekiel 128 where where Ezekiel 1 really bursts into our understanding, and we get an understanding of what John's seeing too. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Notice how many times in this chapter, if you can go back and and read it more carefully on your own, how many times uh, Ezekiel talks about the appearance. They had the appearance above above what appeared to be the waste, below what appeared to be the waste, was the appearance. See, Ezekiel is understanding, I'm having a vision. I'm seeing something that doesn't actually exist like this in that place. What I'm seeing is is being transformed either by my eyes or for my eyes. And I think it's being translated or transformed for his eyes because it's an appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. God is spirit. God's glory naturally is going to be a spiritual glory that is not visible to us. But we're not spiritual creatures. We don't see that way. We don't see that stuff. What, what we see is uh, what, what we see are things that have some sort of shapes, things upon which light strikes and reflects. C.S. Lewis once talked about science and, and physics and the way molecules are put together and said if our eyes were put together differently, the air in front of us would look as solid as a cloud. It's simply because, because the way our eyes are formed that we see the way we see. So John, as he writes, describes these living creatures in just a few verses, the ones that Ezekiel takes an entire chapter to describe. But they're describing the same thing. They're describing the glory of God being represented. Now, there's been some suggestions and, and questions about what do these four living creatures represent. Uh, Irenaeus in the late second century suggested that they're the Gospels, that uh, in, in, the, in the lion, ox, man, and eagle, you have the four Gospels. Uh, usually it comes out as, as Matthew is the lion because Jesus is the lion of Judah. Mark is the ox because Mark presents Jesus as the servant. Luke is the man because Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. And John is the eagle because John presents, presents Jesus as the Christ. The problem is you can find elements of all four of those in each of the Gospels. Irenaeus was just trying to figure out what are we seeing. Another commentator in the 19th century said, these four represent the sovereignty of God in wild places, that's the lion, in cultivated places, that's the ox, in man, that's the, or in cities, that's the man, and in the heavens, that's the eagle. Revelation doesn't tell us what they are. It simply describes their wonder and their glory. And it tells us what they say. If we could talk to these beings, they would wonder why we were so concerned with what they were. When their words are, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That's who they are. They're the creatures who cry this out, 
nonstop. It says, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So we get a picture of worship taking place in heaven. The Hebrew language has no superlative words. It has no comparative words like better or best. It simply doesn't function that way. The Greek language does. And English, of course, does. We can say that's good, this is better, that would be best. And we have individual words and meanings for those. In the Hebrew language, the way that they achieved that was by repeating words. And so quite often in the Old Testament, you'll find two words repeated. You even see Jesus do that in the Gospel of John. 25 times he says, truly, truly. He's repeating them within a Hebrew context, even though it's in Greek. He's repeating them in a Hebrew context to emphasize what he's saying. There's only two places in the Bible that we see three words repeated. And they're these three words, holy, holy, holy. And they're repeated in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. And here in Revelation chapter 4, both referring to God. When the Bible says that God is holy, 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 it doesn't mean that he's good, although he is, or that he's righteous, or that he is, or that he's ethically pure, although he is. It means that he's separate. It means that he is apart from Holy, the, the Greek word holy, hagias, means, uh, the, or the, the, the verb form of it, means to set something apart. On, on Wednesday when I married Rick and Christy, and they forsook all others for the rest of their natural days, they made the other one holy to themselves. They set themselves apart for themselves, before the Lord and before witnesses. Well, God is set apart. God is not part of his creation. He is unchanged by his creation. That We use the theological word immutability. It means he does not change and he cannot change. It's not just that God is stuck where he is and he's so big as God he doesn't need to change. It's not possible for him to be changeable. If God can change, that means that until he changes, he's in a state of imperfection. Or it means he changes from a state of perfection into a state of imperfection. God is fully and completely and perfectly himself at all times. That's what it means for him to be holy. And so he is not touched by the sin of his creation. Now there's a, there's a practical aspect to this too. When you think about the prayers that you pray, when you think about the concerns that you have, when you think about the world as we see, how, how often do we... We hear about God is weeping in heaven. God wishes he could do something about this. God is unable to touch this situation. If only we could get God to, if, let's pray and see if we can change God's mind. If you can change God's mind, he's not immutable. And so as I was pondering this back this early this summer when I, I started reading through the Bible every 90 days, one of the things that I did is I went through and I marked uh, because I'm doing it on my computer, I just highlighted every verse that had to do with the sovereignty of God, his absolute power, his absolute freedom of action and freedom of existence. And there are hundreds and hundreds in, in every book. It's amazing. 
Next time somebody tells you, oh, there's just a few passages about the sovereignty of God, you can just say, well, Genesis chapter 1 is one. The whole thing. There, there, there are points even in, in the prophets where I stop trying to highlight issues with the sovereignty of God because it's all about the sovereignty of God. So as you're praying about the sovereignty of God, as you're praying about different conditions and people who are sick, as you're praying about salvation, understand this. God doesn't react to you. If God reacts to you when you do a thing, then he's changing. The reality is, is that God acts in accordance with his decrees. He has already decreed what will come to pass. That is so clear from scripture. So when we go to pray, we go to pray according to what we would call, this is free by the way. We, we pray according to what we would call his preceptive will. It's what he's commanded us in scripture. And then we know that he acts according to his decretive will, according to what he has determined will be. If you can get God to change because of a prayer, he's not God because he's changing. Now, how is this practical? How is this hopeful? It's because no situation that you face is outside of his knowledge or his experience or his awareness or his power. As you face the issues of life with children, with grandchildren, with parents, with aging, with all the things that happen, there's not a thing that happens outside of him. Jesus made that so clear. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without your father. We've added, some versions add, add without God knowing about it. It doesn't say that. He's involved in the decrees on those things. Well, So I have to know the decrees of God. See, I have to know the will of God. What's the will of God? Go to the word, act according to the word. Man makes his plans, God directs his steps. You don't need to know the decrees of God. Just do what he's told you to do and let him work. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These creatures are crying out the absolute separation and unique existence of God, and they do it day and night without ceasing. It is the theme of heaven. It is the theme of heaven our sovereign, holy, separate God. Whenever the living creatures say this, then the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Does God deserve all worship? Yes. Absolutely. Why does he deserve all worship? Because he's God. The twenty-four or the, the living creatures don't praise God for what he does for them. There's room for that. That's praise. That's thanksgiving. There's room for that. We need to do that. The 24 elders aren't praising God for what he has done for them apart from creating them. Worship always begins with who God is. Not what he does for us or what he might be able to do for us or might be willing to do for us. It begins simply because he's God. Why do we worship God? Because he is God And no other reason is necessary. What if he didn't do anything for you other than create you? You still owe him all your worship. 
What if he had created you and dropped you in the middle of a barren wilderness with barely enough to survive? And you never had another sense of the existence of God or the work of God. You owe him all your worship. I owe him all my worship. Simply because he's God. We live in a time where people have focused so much on what God does for me. And I'm thankful because I'm worshiping God because he did in heaven. They worship because God is God. That's the starting point. Now, when we get into chapter 5, we'll see the, the lamb being praised because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God. We see praise happening in accordance with worship. That's absolutely true. But if we don't begin with God deserves it because he is, not because of what he has done for me, then, then we cut something short. I think that this is the worst sin anybody can commit, is to deny God his rightful worship. Romans chapter 1 says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And because of that, Romans 1 goes on to say, God gave them over to impurity. He gave them over to homosexuality, which is a, a cancellation of the first blessing. The first blessing given to man is be fruitful and multiply. Homosexuality is, in a sense, taking that back. I'm not giving you that blessing. And then ultimately, he gives them over to every sort of sin and evil, not just homosexual behavior. There's no greater sin than to refuse to give God the worship he deserves. Israel was involved in a lot of different bad behaviors at times. The sin that drove them and that carried them off into captivity and brought the loss of the nation was idolatry. They refused to honor him as God. King David, uh, on the other hand, was, uh, is the apple of God's eye. He experiences... The, the blessing of God and the favor of God. And for David's sake, God is going to put a descendant of David on the eternal throne. That's Christ. For David's sake, Solomon was going to be king. For David's sake, even though Solomon had sinned greatly against the Lord and the Lord was going to divide the kingdom, for David's sake, he agreed to wait till Solomon was dead. And Solomon's answer to that is, what a relief. Who cares? But remember, David is the man with blood on his hands from all the battles and all the fighting. There are times that David has to be talked out of kind of bad behavior. At one point, he and his men are going along, and they're looking for food. And, and this guy says, no, you can't have my food, uh, and says that to David's men. David goes ready to kill him. And the man's wife, Abigail, comes out, and you don't have to do that, and gives David what he wants and rebukes her husband. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. There's nothing in the text that says that she gets such a bad reputation. There's nothing in the scripture that says she was a seductress, that she was a prostitute. He saw her, he took her because he was king. And then he dismissed her. And when it turned out that she was pregnant, if abortion had been available, that baby would have been aborted. When it turned out she was pregnant, he called for her husband Uriah to be sent home from the front where they were fighting. 
thinking the first thing he'll want to do is go sleep with his wife. He didn't. Because of his brothers in arms, he refused to take the pleasure of his wife, and so he slept at the king's door. David got him drunk, and he still wouldn't do it. So David sent him back to the front with sealed orders to Joab, telling Joab, put this man at the front of a suicide mission so that he dies. And Joab does it. David not only commits adultery, lies, cheats, he arranges for the murder of Uriah and he involves other people in that crime. Why does God bless him? Why does God forgive? Why did he cover his sin? David never worshipped any god but God. Abraham was called into into the worship of God. His, his family were idol worshipers. He was called by the one true God. After receiving the promises of God, he goes off with Sarah, his wife, to Egypt, and she's beautiful. And so he lies about her. She's my sister. He did it again in Philistia with Abimelech. Abimelech's not a name, by the way. Abimelech is a title. It's the title of the king of Philistia. That's why you have multiple Abimelechs, just like you have multiple pharaohs. God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, you're as good as dead because the woman you have is married. And Abimelech goes to David and says, or to to Abraham and says, what are you doing? Why does God continue to bless him? Because Abraham worshiped God alone. Jacob was a cheat. He was a manipulator. Why does God bless him? Because he worshiped God alone. Joseph's uh, brothers, the ten of them, sold him into slavery. Some of them wanted to kill him. Why does God bless them? Because they worshiped God alone. They weren't perfect. They weren't holy. They didn't deserve it. But they didn't commit this sin of idolatry. It's the worst sin that anyone can commit. What John describes going on in heaven is, is this... Boy, there's, there, there's just there's so many different things there. Let me point out a couple things that, that come to me. Number one is, is that it, it seems impossible to imagine because the living creatures never cease to cry out, holy, holy, holy. And when they do that, the 24 elders always respond by falling on their faces, throwing their crowns, and repeating, worthy, uh, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will... They were created, they existed and, and were created every time. So the 24 creatures, or the, the, the 11, the 11, the four living creatures cry it out. The 24 elders fall, cast their crowns, say it. They got to get the crowns back and set up. The creatures say it, they fall. And it, it go, it's like, isn't this going to get old? This is all they do. God has created creatures that are so indescribable that their descriptions from a human being make no sense. And all they're going to do, all they're going to do for all eternity is cry out, holy, holy, holy. We have a hard time with worship, not because God is small, but because we're small. Because our understanding of God is small. Because our sinful flesh gets in the way and it doesn't want to give glory to anyone else. Because we want to do the minimum. We want to do the minimum. When Linda and I were in Africa, we were... Uh, cautioned it, kind of cautioned at one point, if, if you find yourself in this kind of a situation where you're visiting a church, you, you want to have some sermons prepared. 
Because if you're there for four hours, they'll want you to teach for three and a half. That's just the way that they are. There are countries in Asia that they do the same thing. In America, we've, we've kind of collapsed it down. Um, th there have been times in the past, never here, never in Creighton, but there have been times in the past where I've been, I've been pressured to keep it under 20 minutes. It's like I, I can't do an introduction in under 20 minutes. I only preach 40-minute sermons because I don't have the time to prepare a 10-minute sermon. I mean, it, the, the shorter you speak, the, f the more work you've got to put in to make sure that you get everything in there. But we've, we've just kind of lost a sense of it. A huge part of that is a, our culture. The biggest part of that is simply our, our small, misshapen flesh that looks at what the living creatures do and the 24 elders do and says, I can't imagine doing that for all eternity. But these living creatures were made for this. They were made for this. If you suggested to them, isn't this boring, they would look at you like you had horns growing out of your head or something. This is what they were made for. They're absolutely content with it. Now, some have suggested that the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. We're not told. Others have said the 24 elders represent the church, we're not told. What seems to be clear is that the 24 elders represent the redeemed. The redeemed. No wicked are represented in heaven by people who worship. And so at the very least, we have to say that the existence of, of angelic creatures is focused on the worship of God. And the existence of God's redeemed people in heaven is focused on the worship of God. Now, I don't know that we will spend every moment of eternity falling down, casting crowns, getting back up, getting the crowns, falling down. But I'll say this. If that's what we're made for, nothing else will, will make us that content ever. Ever. I don't think we're made just for that. But if we are, to be where God has wanted you to be and made you to be? Have you ever had an hour of your life or half an hour of your life or five minutes where you could say to yourself, this is why I exist? Most of us don't get very many five-minute spans of time where we can say, I'm only doing now what I exist to do. I'm not being pulled by all the other dozens of things that really don't matter. This is the core of, of who I am. Most of us get very few of, of those moments. Eternity will be nothing but this is why I exist. That's why we look forward to it. It's why, why we're not concerned with God trying to rework this life into some kind of an eternal state. We want to know what is it that we have been made for. It's the smallness of our understanding of who God is that affects us. About 150 years ago, a man said, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God 
is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content, and we go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man might claim to be wise, but he is like a wild donkey's colt. And we say, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend to more humble the mind than thoughts of God. It's Charles Spurgeon at the age of 20 in his first sermon. And so we try and understand who God is. The London Baptist Confession says the Lord our God is one, the only living and true God, self-existent in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, entirely pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who alone is immortal, dwelling in the light which no man can approach, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, most holy, utterly wise, sovereignly free, absolute in power, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And MacArthur writes, to worship God is the response to a recognition of who he is and what he has done. If you have a limited understanding of God, then you have a limited capacity to worship. If you have a rich and fully informed understanding of the nature of God, then you have the capacity to worship him nearly as full as he has revealed himself. As we expand our understanding of who God is, we expand our ability to worship. And I have to admit, the more I study and the more I understand, the less I have to say. It's as though when we're young in the Lord or our knowledge is small, we've got all kinds of words and ideas. But as we see who he actually is, what can we say but amen? What can we do but point to the angels and, and say ditto? So, so what do we do? What do we do with our lethargy? What, what do we do with our boredom? What do we do with the, the struggles that we have with our flesh? I think we do the best we can. I think we do the best we can. We understand that the whole human race, when it comes to God, has, has attention deficit disorder. Let, let's call it DDD. Let, let's call it deity deficit disorder. We just, we just can't focus there. We can't give him very much time. We don't have the ability. But this, this was encouraging to me. I, I was thinking about Luke chapter 1. You know, we looked at Luke 1 at Christmas time. The angel Gabriel goes to Zechariah. Zechariah the priest is in the temple. He's burning incense, and, and Gabriel appears there at the temple. 
Gabriel tells Zechariah, I've got good news for you. Your, your prayer has been answered. Your wife is going to bear a son. You're going to call his name John. He's going to be great. He's going to be working in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Zechariah says in verse 18, How shall I know this? For I am an old, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel says, and, and I started thinking about what the angel says. The angel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand. Standing is important. See, standing means remaining. I stand in the presence of God, but I was sent from the presence of God to you. Do you understand what this is costing me to leave the presence of God to come to you in this shoddy little building that Israel was so proud of, but which is nothing compared to that which is in heaven? If an angel of God has that sense of the presence of God, how much more will we have that being fully like Christ in heaven? He knows. He knows that we are just dust. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we struggle. So we worship here in our brief moments of time. We wrestle against the apathy of our own flesh. We keep going back to his word. We keep trying to remind ourselves of who he is. And we look forward to the day when all of those hindrances that we carry within ourselves are gone. And instead of looking through a glass dimly or in a mirror dimly, we can see him face to face. And instead of 20 minutes starting to seem too long, a thousand years will will seem far too short. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this brief picture of worship in heaven and for writing it in such a way, delivering it to John in such a way that he could write it and we could begin to try to understand it. We thank you at least for this clear understanding that you deserve all worship simply because you exist. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to bribe it from us. So, Lord, put to death anything within us that says you owe us. Put to death anything in us that says I'll withhold my worship until you meet my standards. Forgive our apathy and forgive our laziness and have pity on our inability to understand. We have deity deficit disorder, Lord. We just don't seem to be able to stick with it for very long. Too many other things creep in. It's only by your mercy and your grace and the power of your spirit that we can focus as we do. And so we ask that you would increase that for us, that you would continue to keep us humble before you, like those 24 elders falling on our faces, casting the crowns and worshiping you as the creator. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are not here and ask that you would bless them and protect them, surround them with your presence and call them to you. Lord, fill our hearts and fill our mouths with the gospel to proclaim it to this world that is in such desperate need. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.